is a shit idea. <laughs> Nobody likes it. We have no demand for this product. Our prototypes aren't going that well. Um, and that night, I remember getting dinner with some alumni actually from the Cube who'd come to visit um, and some current members of the Cube. And they basically said, yeah, this is the night you decide whether this is the thing you're going to go all in on or you're moving on to mess around with your next project. That was the last night that I feel like I had a choice, which yeah. is why it was so scary. Because when you still have a choice, you're like, oh no, do I, you know, do I eject or not? And after that, I removed the ejection handles. I'm like, all right, we're riding this thing into the ground no matter what happens. Hey everyone, I'm Arjun, and welcome to the sixth episode of My First Sale, the podcast where I take you under the hood to see what all you need to do to start your own e-commerce business. We're going to hear from people who are right in the thick of it, and I'm honored to welcome my sixth guest to the show, Casper Kubica. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, just to give you an idea of what the purpose of the podcast yeah. is, it's pretty much to give people an idea of how to start their business. You know, a lot of times awesome. we hear yeah. from people who are these huge billionaires running massive companies. And that's not very practical to hear about that kind of stuff. It's inspirational sometimes, but it's not actually helpful to know uh, how to get from where you are to that next step. So I wanted to go around and interview people who I thought were doing a really great job with their businesses. So welcome. Well, thank you. I, uh, I'm glad you know you fell for that, uh, looking <laughs> at our company. Uh, but no, very, very honored to be here. I appreciate you, uh, you know. Um, asking me to be on the show. Yeah, and if you want to start by just introducing yourself and talking a bit about what your business does. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm Casper Kubica. I am the uh, co-founder of Carpe. Uh, we basically make sweat solutions for all over the body. So we started with sweaty hands. My co-founder David and I had sweaty hands, and we said, why isn't there an underarm antiperspirant but for hands? So we made one. And uh, since then, we've brought it into sweaty feet, actually sweaty underarms, the most common problem. Uh, and now face, forehead, uh, you know, breasts, thighs, we're really trying to address excessive sweating in a convenient, accessible, effective way, no matter where, why, or how it occurs. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I mean, you mentioned a lot of different parts of the body there. I think, yeah. as you mentioned, probably the place that is most conventionally thought of as the sweat trapping area that people actually do address is probably underarm right. and the fact that you guys are addressing all these different places you mentioned hands you mentioned feet you mentioned face you mentioned breasts thighs mm -hmm. like a lot of different places how did you think that you would need to start addressing something else like you know i think i think these other places beyond the hands is sort of the stage that we're at right now mm -hmm. which isn't really early days anymore i mean we're we're now selling products nationwide in target and cvs oh we're among the top selling antiperspirants in amazon so it's a really really cool position to be in and it's thanks to you know those uh those stores taking a chance on us so we really appreciate that um but it, it's been a it's been a slow growth to there over the past five years since we started we started selling in the summer of 2015 on Amazon and on our website, and that was just the hand antiperspirant, where basically David and I had sweaty hands, and we said, let's make a simple solution for sweaty hands, and it took us about a year and about 60 prototypes, but at the end of that, we had a product that we really liked, that the people we were testing it with really liked, and so we, uh, with the help of some angel investors in the area, because unfortunately this antiperspirants being an OTC drug, you have to work with contract manufacturers with a significant minimum batch size uh, just because of all the paperwork they have to do for every production run. 
uh, we needed we needed a tiny bit of seed capital. We had nothing to get started. Mm-hmm. And Bootstrap Advisors in Durham, Ben J and Chris, they helped us out and they helped us launch on Amazon uh, that summer. And that's really where where it all began. Oh my God! Wow. There's, there's so many different parts I want to dive into yeah. here. But you mentioned sixty prototypes. Like how? How do you even build the first prototype for this? Like, how do you say, okay, I want to go out there and create a lot. I wouldn't even know where to start with a lotion. Like- yeah. You know, so um, interestingly enough, a lot of composite, so this is formulation chemistry. Uh, it's kind of like cooking. It's, you know, not the <laughs> hardest thing in the world. It's not um, coming up with novel ingredients. It's basically mixing decently common ingredients together. Uh, there's a lot that can go wrong and there's a lot of nuance to it, but David and I both had science backgrounds. We were also at the time working with another chemistry student at UNC, Chris Jenks. And the three of us basically were getting together in a dorm room and uh, you know, really reading online how to make some basic formulations. There's all these people on Etsy, et cetera, making all these lotions. So there's a pretty good uh, you know, literature base for how to get started. And we were actually looking also at some expired patents as to what could work in a sort of non-greasy, quick drying, almost uh, you know, dry feeling lotion. And uh, from there we, you know, we started messing with some different ingredients. We actually reached out to some ingredient suppliers um, and used titles that would imply that we were part of a much bigger company. And this was a small project for a big company, not a couple college students who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and these ingredient suppliers were really great. They, uh, they actually started sending us ingredients to try because they knew that you know if, if this stuff works out and this product actually succeeds, we're going to be ordering a lot from them. Yeah. And uh, you know that's, that's what happened. So I think they took a, took a good bet. I don't know if they would have taken that bet if they knew immediately who we were, but by the time you know, we'd really started getting to know each other, I think they, they realized, okay, these guys have some, uh, have some motivation here, have some hustle, so maybe, maybe they'll uh, pull something off. Wow, that's that's a really cool story. Yeah. Um, when you're building this, you mentioned that you, you know, had sweaty hands personally, both yeah. you and David, your co-founder, and you thought, okay, let's try to build something to fix this. Did you look to see out there, like what, like had you tried to find other stuff and you weren't able to? We had, okay. yeah. So that's a that's a great part of the story, actually. Um, when David and I st- started talking about this, he was saying, you know, I've been to dermatologists about this. They say that there's nothing. I say, no, no, no. There's there's stuff online. Um, I I was skeptical that there was that much of a market for it actually because you know it wasn't something you could find in stores. So I said this you know probably isn't that big of a need for that many people. Even though I would totally use a product like this, um, but we looked online and sure enough, there were a lot of hand antiperspirants, um, and so we we bought them and we tried them and they were all really greasy and <laughs> you know uh, basically to kind of you know, really dumb it down. Uh, a lot of the way the OTC topical industry works, so products with active ingredients like antiperspirants, like anti-acne creams, etc., work is that uh, a lot of companies just go to a pretty basic formulation lab and say, take this active ingredient and put it in a form that feels okay, like a lotion, like a cream. They don't really look at those inactive ingredients, even though the inactive ingredients are oftentimes what make or break the product. Hmm. Um, and in the case of these hand antiperspirants that we were buying online, these companies had neglected the inactives completely. They were just make using really greasy lotions. They were putting some, uh, you know, aluminum active salts in it, some antiperspirant salts, um, and they were expecting it to work. And the antiperspirant effect was probably there, but if you're putting it on and it's so greasy, it's basically the feeling itself is making your hands sweat more, you're not gonna have an effective product. So we started from a very basic uh, kind of basic premise after trying these products, which was that if we could make a delivery vehicle, if we could make a lotion that 
wasn't greasy, that was almost drying, you know, that left this dry feeling on your hands, and we could deliver the antiperspirant with that, uh, then we might be onto something. So that's really where we started formulating from. And with those 60 prototypes, we were literally just putting them on, uh, you know, putting gloves on, putting, we put it on one hand, put latex gloves on both hands, and watch scary videos on YouTube just to make our hands as sweaty as possible. We'd <laughs> say, all right, how well is this working? And that's really how we got to the point of something that we were ready to launch. That's crazy. I just can't even imagine, like, why would they build products meant to stop sweaty hands that still made them greasy? That just makes yeah, no sense. I just, I don't think they were tested very well. And I think yeah. that's one thing that we try to make very central in our philosophy is always with new products, just testing them out yeah. with as many people as possible while they're still in the formulation phase. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, can carry broadly to a lot of companies. I, I think with a lot of companies, particularly tech companies, you have the blessing of being able to constantly iterate on products. So you can put it out there in the market, start getting real user feedback and build off that. Um, because we have these regulatory lock-ins with it being an OTC product uh, and it's very, very difficult to change the formula. We have to do all this stability testing. We have to do like active ingredient assays, et cetera, if we change the formula at all. Uh, we can't really change the formula once it's on the market. So we have to do all of this feedback gathering while it's still in the development phase. Wow. Yeah. So once it's out there, it's it's done. That's the product. I mean, we, we could change it, but it would be very, we'd probably have to basically pull back everything we have out there. Or a, probably simpler would be to launch like a version 2.0. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, we're in a peculiar industry, especially with the OTC drugs thing. I think even in most cosmetics, you have a much easier time of it. I know Moise Ali, the founder of Native, uh, was saying in another podcast that I was listening to recently that he would basically A-B test formulas of the same product as he was shipping them out to customers uh, who were buying them on his website. Because uh, you can do that with a cosmetic, like a deodorant. Yeah. Most of our products are OTC drugs, they're antiperspirants, so we can't really do that. Um, we do now have these sweat absorbing products which aren't OTC, which aren't uh, antiperspirants. And that's kind of tying back to something you brought up earlier, which is this wide variety of products we have. As the hand products started doing well, we just started hearing from more and more of our customers who had sweating in other parts of the body, and they said, nobody's really making good products to address my sweating on my thighs, on my breasts, on my face. Can you guys make something? Um, and that's how we got to developing those products. Wow, and so are the products that, I, I guess, I mean, there's maybe different oils, or like, what, like, what differs in the products between different parts of the body? Yeah. Um, so the antiperspirants all started with the same formula, actually. We made it for the hands, yeah. and then people were saying, I'm using this on my feet, and we said, okay, it's for the hands and feet. And people <laughs> said, that's gross. Like, seriously, we, we changed it. People started saying, like, this, I'm not gonna use the same thing on my hands and feet. We said, okay, uh, I guess we'll label them separately. And so we label them separately, <laughs> but it is, in case anybody's curious, the hand and the foot is the same formula. The underarm, actually, we just happened to do some underarm efficacy testing on this same formula and found that it's an insanely, insanely effective antiperspirant. Yeah. It's kind of hard to make the hands stop sweating. So if you made that, made something that works on the hands, it's gonna work pretty well on the underarms. Um, and so we just found an applicator that works quite well on the underarms. That was a very long process, but the underarm product, same formula as well. It's just a, it's a really good underarm antiperspirant. Some people have told us that they've spent their entire lives looking for an underarm antiperspirant that works for them, and this is the first one that actually does it, which wow. you'd think in a developed industry like this, where you know there's been antiperspirants for decades and all sorts of brands, there'd be something for everyone, but there really still isn't. There's all sorts of possibility for innovation and all sorts of pain points that are out there that even in these well-developed industries that we're not seeing. Oh my God. Yeah. That's crazy. And okay, just to clarify for any listeners out there, when you say OTC, the phrase you mean is over-the-counter. Correct, right? yeah, thanks for clarifying that. So over-the-counter drugs, um, yeah, I, I can get into the whole regulatory <laughs> of that, but I, I won't. So I guess 
maybe just at a broad level, like yeah. what makes this an over-the-counter product as opposed to a prescription product? Yeah, great question. So yeah, so a high-level summary is in order. Um, to to kind of dumb it down, not dumb it down. Um, <laughs> As a gross oversimplification, if you've got a lotion or a cream that you're using, there's basically one of three regulatory classes it's gonna fall into. Uh, either a cosmetic, um, which is the easiest category. You need to abide by some certain, you know, good hygiene standards. You can't be putting filth out there, but the, the laws around cosmetics aren't very stringent. This is what most, you know, people who sell lotions on farmer's markets are going by, but this is also what a lot of the big cosmetic brands go by these laws. Uh, the next level up is over-the-counter drugs. These are basically drugs that use very simple active ingredients um, that are well established to have safety and efficacy. And as long as you play by the rules of these monographs that the FDA has put out for how to use certain ingredients, uh, you basically just need to play by the rules, but you don't need to file anything with the FDA. The manufacturers do. The manufacturers have frequent facility visits by the FDA, so you know that you need to make sure that your ducks are in a row there. But that's why, at a scale like ours, you're working with contract manufacturers. Even when you're getting up to very, very big companies, they're often working with contract manufacturers that specialize in making this stuff, so you don't have to have the capital and regulatory burden of actually running your own manufacturing plant. Um, so that's OTC drugs, and they really range. Um, OTC is a, is a very broad category, um, almost controversially so, because it ranges from things like, yeah, like antiperspirants, which most people would almost consider a cosmetic product, but yeah. technically it does have a physiological effect in that it reduces the amount of sweat coming out of your sweat glands, um, all the way through to things like Tylenol, which, you know, if you overdose on that, you will literally die. Right. Uh, so this is all over-the-counter drugs. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy. And then you get into prescription drugs, um, and that's the category which most people, when they think of FDA regulation, that's the category they think of. They're thinking of like phase one, two, three clinical trials, yeah. approvals, millions of dollars of investment. Um, that's not a space we play in. That's not a space we have any interest in playing right. in right now. Yeah. <laughs> so do you say that like even to create a startup, you were very intent on creating something that was an over-the-counter drug? I think in hindsight, I... I think we should have made something that was a cosmetic and just sweat absorbing. Yeah. I the the whole any regulatory is a headache <laughs> from from issues ranging as simple as the fact that we need to um, manufacture at these dedicated facilities with these big batch sizes, uh, which really hampered us in the early days from being flexible and just iterating quickly on products post launch. I think we've we've made a really good product, but I would love to have the flexibility of you know being able to constantly change my product if it wasn't an over the counter product. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, it's just, and any regulatory overhead is never something you want to have. Yeah. Uh, so I will say, in hindsight, definitely would have wanted to stay in the cosmetic space, but we're here now, and uh, it, it's a good product. And obviously, to keep the antiperspirant actives in it, we do legally need to be in the over-the-counter space. But that's something that I think, if we were doing this again. Uh, we would maybe do a little further down the road once the company had developed a bit and built a customer base a little bit more. Because um, I think the startup costs there were just significant. Yeah. So, you know, to anybody who's wanting to get into the space of consumer products, um, I'd say definitely see if you can do it in a cosmetic way. And if not, then, you know, you might have to do the, um, the OTC path. And then definitely, unless you have experience and you're working with people who, you know, have done it before, I would strongly uh, encourage avoiding the prescription path. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And so it's interesting that you compare it to, uh, or maybe even contrast it, I guess, with software and how you typically when you're building software, right, you want to be able to like, iterate on a product and that's something that you have to do 
pre-release, right? Yeah, which so, is cha- challenging. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess another aspect that I'm curious about is when you look at other people who are building products at the same timeline as you or even following you, uh, I guess, how are you able to figure out, you know, what all is out there and, like, who else could be even close to what you're building? Like, are there, are there, are you just buying a bunch of competitor lotions and testing them out and saying, okay, this one's trash, this one's trash, this one's good? Like, yeah, no, that's a great <laughs> question. I think um, we definitely always keep an eye on what uh, what else is out there. So we're always buying other products, but that goes well beyond antiperspirants. I mean, we buy all sorts of cosmetic and OTC products just to see what other companies are doing yeah. with their packaging, their messaging, their actual formulations. Um, and I think we're a lot less competitor focused than many people would assume. Hmm. I think in categories like this, you actually tend to do better if you focus on your customers and you focus on what they like and why they're choosing you rather than focusing on, on one-upping the competition. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, that, that is a, that is a whole nuanced (laughs) conversation. Um, but you know, on this note of software, I, I will say, uh, in many, in many ways, I'm kind of jealous of software companies that can constantly iterate on product. And I think they're also in a position where, because of that, they're able to really compete with um, better products. So to your, to your point about really looking at the competition, I think if you're a software company, you can really be looking at what features competitors are rolling out, seeing how their users are responding and saying, is this something that we want to clutter our product with? Is it a value add or is it you know, an attraction? And that is a really, I think, uh, I think that would be a really fun thing to do, to, to yeah. build a product like that, uh, where we, by contrast, have to do that more with marketing. Um, I, I do think we're not on like a hardware company, like a, you know, like a tech hardware company, where they have a physical hardware product that they need to put out there, and they can't make changes to that hardware once it's out there without releasing new versions, but they can change the software or the firmware, right? Yeah. Uh, we have a similar, uh, you know, we're in a similar position where our products are out there, but the way we're talking about them with customers, the way we're encouraging people to use them or try them out, we can really adapt that. And I think that's where we might learn the most uh, from customers who are having a good experience, customers who are having a bad experience, even looking at what competitors are doing. And that's where we can kind of continue to iterate even though the product is already out there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so when you guys are talking to customers, uh, I imagine obviously a lot of people have been dealing with this issue, more people than you expected when you first started the company. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> um, and when they come to you, they say, okay, like, I want to try this product, and they try it out. I guess, what percent of your time is focused on finding new people who are dealing with these problems versus keeping people who have started buying your products and making sure that they're continuing to buy? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when we came into this, all the advice we were getting um, was you need to prove the market here. You need to prove that, you know, this is a very new category. There's not really a lot of hand antiperspirants out there. and you know, you guys are saying the market isn't the hand antiperspirants out there. I mean, this is what we were saying to people. Yeah. We were saying those products are trash. The market is way, way bigger. Nobody's actually addressing the market. Um, and so the correct response that people were giving us was, well, prove it. You know, this was like investors, advisors, mentors, basically. Yeah. Um, if you guys think this is a big market, you know, show that there's demand out there for this product. So we focused very, very heavily on acquisition yeah. uh, for our first few years. And I think, um, honestly, that was to the detriment of customer experience. I think if you bought Carpe a few years ago, you may have uh, had a pretty good experience going to our website, checking out, and then you probably had really, really 
poor email communication from us afterwards. You may not have known where your order is. You may have been surprised when it finally arrived. It was probably in poor packaging. The instructions <laughs> on how to use it weren't clear. I mean, this is all really bad stuff. Um, but I think we've had to face it and say, we really need to clean up this customer experience and make a brand that people love and talk about. And I really think we've come a long way in that in the last, even the last few months. Yeah. Um, so I will say that's that's probably been our biggest focus recently is, you know, kind of this idea of going back to uh, we're a company that can still update our software and firmware even though we have a hardware product out there. Previously our mentality was sort of, we've shipped it, now let's just get users. Now our mentality is more, you know, we can keep making this product better even though it's on the market. Yeah. We can make the experience better even if the lotion is the same. That makes sense. Do, do you feel like in this space you have to do a lot of education at all to, I mean, presumably to investors or people like that, but even to potential customers about just hyperhidrosis or the idea of sweaty hands in general, or do you find that it's generally well known? Yeah, I think the education is more about how to use our products just because when it comes to underarm antiperspirants and deodorants, people already have a routine. They know how to use those things. Um, with a hand antiperspirant, they'll forget to use it because they don't know that you know you really should be applying it twice daily for best results. You really need to put it on before bed. Uh, I think in customer acquisition, we don't really try to we don't really try to talk about hyperhidrosis. Actually, when people search for hyperhidrosis, uh, you know, we want to be on Google and show up because we do help manage the symptoms of hyperhidrosis. Um, but you know, I, I think the term hyperhidrosis might clinicalize this for some people, uh, where you know, a lot of people do see and hyperhidrosis itself is an interesting condition. Um, you know, if you look at the research, it's, it's really defined by how much your sweating impacts your quality of life. So there's a lot of people who don't sweat much, but for them, it is a big burden. And those people definitely want something to help with that. And there's a lot of people who sweat very excessively, but they don't really mind it. And those people aren't interested in a solution. And I don't want to push a product onto those people if they don't want something, right? Yeah. I'm, we're here to help people who really want to reduce their excessive sweat. And I think those people, when they see Carpe, when they see that, hey, there's something that can help with that, they're gonna check it out. Yeah, that's basically where we are. And um, in terms of you know investors, etc., um, I think no matter how you explain it, you just need to talk about. You do need to explain customer demand, but that's that's with any product, <laughs> yeah. right? That's not unique to us. Right, right. That makes sense. You talked about how at the beginning. I mean, I know both you and David and your other uh, friend Chris. Is that right? Yeah, Chris yeah, Jenks. Yeah, all, all of you guys had some experience with science and chemistry and with I guess the product building side. How did you take on this marketing aspect of things? I know, especially it sounds like in the last you know couple of years, a lot of the stuff related to customer acquisition is in this marketing piece. Did that come naturally to you, or how did you? Um, I will say, I think David, my co-founder, is a lot better naturally at marketing and sales. We actually have a very interesting division of responsibility because I'm more of the finance ops guy. I'm you know uh, I just physics and computer science, so I'm in in college, so. I'm a numbers guy, but I also did a lot of filmmaking growing up, so I'm also the creative guy. Um, I have very high standards for writing. I have very high standards for design. There's a lot of things out there under the Carpe brand that I, you know, isn't quite up to my standards, but sometimes <laughs> we just have to ship. We just have to get something out there. Um, and so I've always done the creative for our ads. I've always filmed all of our TV ads. I've created a lot of our, um, you know, digital ads. And David would be the one handling the placement of them, working with the agencies that are actually buying the, the spots to run our TV ads, et cetera. And I think we just learn from our mentors. I mean, really, um, success in business, uh, probably success in anything, but I know success in entrepreneurship m comes nearly exclusively from the people you're working with. Uh, and at the start, that's your co-founder. And as you grow, that's your investors and advisors. And then it's your team, your employees. 
Uh, and I think at every stage you need to kind of learn and open yourself up to that. Um, but I think that's a lesson that just keeps keeps repeating itself to me. Uh, you know, I have to learn it oftentimes the hard way where the focus really needs to be on the people because every, every success that we've had in marketing, kind of getting back to your point, when we were coming from a place where we didn't know this much, uh, was because we were working with mentors and advisors who did know how to take a product like ours and actually present it to a wider audience, how to go out there, get eyeballs, get clicks, and start generating sales. Um, and I think we've gotten better at it ourselves right now, David and I have, yeah. and our team, but I think it really came from the people we surrounded ourselves with, and you know, we were lucky that they, uh, they were kind enough to work with us. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And I know, especially with direct-to-consumer products, the idea of creating a very distinct and uh, you know unique brand is is super important. And yeah. you know, I mean, you guys have been, yeah, I mean, you're doing really well from the revenue side of things, but also with the branding side of things. I feel like I can really distinctly imagine the the Carpe you know image, and you guys are very active on all sorts of social media, even TikTok recently. <laughs> as I found out. Yeah, um, I guess like, out. <laughs> how, how do you think about? I guess like branding in general and how, how you create an idea of your company and have that be attached to the product in people's minds? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, I hear a lot about this in entrepreneurship circles. I hear a lot of people speaking about culture and, you know, how to create good culture. And uh, I think brand is an interesting analogy to culture uh, where, you know, culture is this interplay between it comes from the team and it comes from the people and it just kind of spontaneously arises, but it also does need to be set from the top if you want to guide it in a, in a good way. There's like this cognitive dissonance <laughs> in all the conversations around culture where it's like, no, it needs to come from the top, but it doesn't come from the top. It just, it comes from whatever is already happening. Uh, I think the same thing with brand where um, a successful brand really does need to be defined in some ways by the, the company and the founders, but it's, it's gonna fail miserably unless it actually echoes with the voice of the customer. Uh, I don't think we are by any means um, a good company to learn branding from. I, I think we're really in the trenches of figuring it out ourselves right now because this is the first uh, experience David and I have had with it. We haven't launched other companies that have grown into successful brands. I will say Carpe as a brand I think is doing better and better. Um, but I think we figured that out kind of by really the starting point was basically we're going to be orange. Like that was the starting point. And some people who, who don't know brand very well and don't have like a very nuanced understanding of brand, when I'm telling them like, hey, you know, we, we've had a lot of challenges with refining our brand and making something that really, you know, connects with people. They're like, oh no, your brand's been very consistent and defined for a long time. And I say, what do you mean? They're like, oh, well, it's, you know, that orange, that's very well-defined branding. I'm like, yeah, okay, in one sense, you know, in visual identity, we've always been orange, we've always been white. Those have been our two big colors. Um, but I think brand is much more about emotion and feeling and what, you know, uh, a product conveys in that sense. And I think when we started, we just wanted to make a solution for sweaty hands. It was that simple. And we said, hey, here's Carpe, it's a solution to sweaty hands. And what we started hearing from customers was a lot of stories of pain and a lot of stories of, you know, hope uh, that Carpe provided to them. And we started realizing, you know, this is, this is about more than just a problem solution. This is about uh, creating a brand that actually inspires hope through understanding the pain that people are going through and through sharing stories of other people uh, for whom Carpe has been a big help. Um, and I think it's easy to say that and it's much harder to execute on that, but I, what I'm trying to kind of illustrate is that that has become a focal point of our brand intentionally. That's something that we're starting to really intentionally bring into our communications, our materials, and kind of push from the top. 
Uh, and that really originated from listening to the customers, listening to you know the entire network of who our brand interacts with. Yeah, that makes sense. How did you pick the name Carpe? Uh, oh yeah, so there's <laughs> nothing that special about that name actually. We, when David and I were getting started, it was called Clutch. Um, I think our friend Mark Botterill, he's this great British comedian. Um, I, if you're listening to this in 10 years, I swear he's gonna be a famous comedian by then, so you can probably just Google Mark Botterill comedian and he'll be up there. Um, he, uh, he said, oh, you should call it Clutch because you know it's clutch, it comes in clutch, and it's like clutching someone's hand, it'll help you do that because you have dry hands, yeah. so that's a perfect name. Uh, we did a trademark search, which we thought meant Googling, you know, clutch antiperspirant, there was nothing out there, okay, perfect, it's ours. Um, and then when we started working with Bootstrap, our first big advisors who, you know, uh, I, I can't iterate, sorry, I can't reiterate this enough, I should have started with this, it really comes down to the people you're working with, the mentors you have, the advisors you have, uh, Dave, I would have been nothing without David in this company. Like the reason I think this company exists is because David and I found each other. Uh, it's not because of the product, it's not because of the problem, it's because we came together and somehow we happened to work very, very, very well together. And I think the second most important thing is that Bootstrap, uh, Benji and Chris, they took an interest in us and they wanted to help us out because without them, I don't think we would have even made it to product launch. Uh, so one of the things they helped us out with was very quickly when we started working with them, they said, have you done a trademark search on Clutch? And we said, yeah, yeah, we Googled it. You know, there's nothing out there. And they said, no, 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 have you done like a USPTO trademark search? And it's very easy. You can do it online and you can probably learn how to do it uh, better than we had done it with five minutes of Googling. <laughs> uh, but they basically said, no, just figure out how to do it the right way. Turns out there's these international classes or international categories. I think it's international classes of products and trademarks are assigned within these international classes. And our products are an international class three which is basically cosmetics, et cetera. So you, trademarks consider, you know, antiperspirants to be a cosmetic product. Um, and there was a clutch cologne in that uh, category. So we said, oh no, we have to go back to the drawing board. This was actually a very, very painful moment for us. Um, <laughs> particularly for David, who was, you know, I think he was much more attached to the name. He'd kind of been carrying that name for a while. Um, and no joke, when we decided that it's time to, we were literally, uh, writing emails back and forth with Abercrombie and Fitch's attorneys about how we could potentially end up using this name. And they were willing to play ball, but they had pretty stringent conditions. And you know, Benji and Chris are saying, what are you guys doing even entertaining this? It's so easy to change the name. And we're saying, no, 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 we have like 100 followers on Facebook. We have so much community <laughs> buy-in to this name. We can't change the name. That would you know, torpedo the company. And uh, they finally persuaded us, thank God. Uh, they knew much better than we did. And we workshopped the name for about a month and uh, Ben, Jay, Chris, David and me, we are five white straight guys. So the names we actually started coming up with after that were Peak, Alpha, you know, <laughs> Ben seriously proposed the name Money for the product. Uh, and yeah, and, and, and then fortunately our friends are a bit more diverse so we started taking it to our friends and some women in particular said, that's disgusting, you can't name this product Alpha, nobody's gonna buy it. And we said, oh, maybe you're right. Um, and Mark came back into the scene and he said, hey guys, you know what kind of feels like Clutch has that same energy but is different? Carpe. And everybody loved Carpe and it passed the trademark search and that is the long and convoluted story of why we are Carpe. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. So... Obviously, I know you and David, and yeah, yeah, um, we know each other from uh, college entrepreneurship, actually. right? <laughs> um, so, you want to talk a bit about how you guys met each other and how you decided to 
start a company together? Yeah, that's a that's a great story. So I think when I when I came into Duke, so I went to Duke with you. Yeah. Uh, I think I was a year above you, mm. right? Um, I actually joined this living group that you were into, yeah. the Cube, um, and I joined it. One of the reasons I actually came to Duke is because I thought the entrepreneurship community there was great, and my philosophy with entrepreneurship was this is what I want to do with my life. I want to start companies. You know, I don't need a huge success right out of the gate, but one day, hopefully, I'm building spaceships. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but I, I had this mentality of I, I want to work on cool projects with cool people. I want to learn the hard skills of like physics, uh, computer science in a classroom, and I want to learn business in practice. Uh, and so I was working on some small projects as a freshman, um, you know, being inspired by what the people in the queue were doing around me, but it, it all kind of fell apart. Um, and it really fell apart because of the people I was working with. And I don't mean to say that, you know, they did anything wrong, but that we just weren't a good team. I, mostly I think it was my problem. I, I mean, I, I was the problem there, but I didn't lead that team well. And then summer, coming out of the freshman year, uh, the summer after that, I was, uh, I was a Robertson scholar which is the Duke UNC cross campus uh, scholarship. And David, my co-founder, was a UNC scholar of the same year. And as part of the program, we were living together in New Orleans um, that summer. And late one night, he basically pulls me aside and he's like, hey, I know you have sweaty hands. Like I've been <laughs> thinking about what if we made something to stop sweaty hands? Uh, and I initially said, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> um, like, you know, kind of cutting back to earlier in this interview um, where I said it probably a little more Positively, I was like, oh yeah, I think we should try some different products. But I said like, no, nobody's gonna buy this. There's not like, if there's probably something out there um, that that hasn't taken off because there's no demand. And then, you know, turned out David hadn't even looked for other products out there, other <laughs> over-the-counter antiperspirants. And I think that actually started very quickly illustrating uh, why David and I are such a good team because I think David will always see a way and he'll always see possibilities and things. And I'll always see the roadblocks and I'll say, okay, well first we need to see what's out there and you know, and we tried it and it sucked. And it's like, okay, so here's an opportunity actually. Maybe the reason that there's not products out there isn't because there's no demand, maybe it's because there's no supply. There's nobody who's done this well. Um, and so that's when we really started working on the formula and we were working on these uh, you know, internships in New Orleans over the summer. But I remember two weeks after we started talking about Carpe, we basically stopped going to our internships. We were just meeting all day in cafes, working on this crazy idea. And you know, it was still at the time just a project, like a, a project that we wanted to do. We said it'd be so cool to make this and see if anybody would buy it. Um, and you know, it really didn't become the venture we would devote ourselves to until college kept going on and suddenly we're spending more time on this than we're spending in class. We're not really going to social events. We're just doing this in class and then less and less class. And then by the time we graduated, Carpe was doing well enough that we could afford to pay ourselves a very basic salary. So we did that and then we went about raising a seed round. And that's kind of how it grew from this very little idea to a project. And again, that was because it was less so even the idea, but more so that David and I really found that we worked so well together that we never met anybody with whom we worked better than each other. We said, we gotta, we gotta stick together on this because I think you know no matter what, we're gonna learn how to do something incredible together. And I think we really have. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's been an awa amazing journey and I can't wait to see what, what comes next. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I love that. I think having that co-founder that you have both a good working relationship with and that, uh, that trust uh, can really make any company much more successful than it would have been if you're working with somebody who you don't like working with, who you don't have that uh, that rapport with, I guess. Exactly. I think it's, um, I mean, it, 
it's it's the romantic relationship analogy. It's basically <laughs> that. I yeah. mean, you know, you need to have all these things that people say about a romantic relationship, like trust and forgiveness and understanding, and you need to have faith that the other person is truly in it for the right reasons. So, you know, even if they slip up, you know, they, they did it with good intentions. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there just also just needs to be chemistry. Yeah. You know, you yeah. need to click and you need to sort of complement each other. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm a hard guy to get along with. I don't think I'm particularly good at making friends. But there was something about David and me where we just clicked like that. And I said, we need to hold on to this because yeah. I don't know if I'm ever going to meet somebody who I work with as, as good as David. I, I Honestly, I, I genuinely cannot think of a way that I would improve David right now. Um, and we're five years into it. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have our fights. But I still think he is the perfect co-founder for me. And that's probably the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me yeah. is that I met David. And again, after that, the second luckiest thing is that we met all these advisors who helped us. And the third luckiest thing is that we've met, you know, the, the team, the people who have started working alongside us on Carpe, our head of operations, head of finance, all our marketing folks, our customer service people. I mean, that is your company. Your company is not your product. To some degree, it may be your community, your customers, but really it's the people who are working on this with you. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. Um, as you know, the the name of this podcast is My First Sale, and oh, a lot of the uh, nice the stuff that I like to hear about from entrepreneurs is sort of that idea of their first sale. And I think a lot of times that tends to shift the way you think about a business because up until then you're you know you're working on products, you're working on talking to customers, but you're not actually making anything from it. And as soon as somebody hands you cash for your idea, you know it almost flips a switch into business. So I was yeah. wondering if you remember what that was or something along that timeline. Well, first of all, I love that focus. I think, uh, you know, if there's two things that when I'm speaking with budding entrepreneurs I try to get across is that one thing that I've been talking about is it's all about the people. Don't neglect the people for the product. Don't, you know, choose the perfect idea. If you choose the perfect team, that's that's what matters more than anything else. And the second thing is get that first sale because you don't have anything until you have a sale, right? You've got, and you know, there's exceptions to every rule. If you're doing some really hard biotech you know, 20 year play where it takes 20 years to develop and get the regulatory, et cetera, and then you're gonna cure cancer. Drugs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that might be a bit of an exception, but with most things that people our age are working on, uh, you know, as cool as your idea seems, just get it as simple as possible to get it out there, get people paying for it, because everybody's gonna be nice to you until you've got a cool idea, until you ask them for money. Yeah. And for us, it was very, very difficult to get to that stage, which is why, you know, I would not advise people uh, who are listening to this to actually go into the space that we went into in terms of OTC drugs because there is this barrier to entry of needing to do these pretty decent batches, getting a formula stable, getting all this testing done on the formula, et cetera. Um, but uh, that's what we needed that seed money for. And you know, we, we were very lucky to find the right partners for that and get that money and get that testing and even find a good partner in a contract manufacturer that was helping us out at this very, very small scale. Uh, and so, with, uh, with all that work and all that money into it, we were finally able to launch on Amazon and on our website on, I think, July 14th of 2015, we went live, but we didn't announce it until July 16th. And I remember that we basically had two strategies for go-to-market. One, one of the big reasons we launched on Amazon was that there was actually already a lot of search traffic on Amazon for solutions to sweaty hands. Mm. There just wasn't anything good out there. <laughs> and so we started getting sales from that almost immediately after we posted it. You know, the official go live was going to be on the 16th, but I think a couple sales trickled in on the 15th and we were like, oh, are this, is this real or is this <laughs> our family members? Um, and then on the 16th, you know, we had some local press, less so here, but more so in our hometowns in Utah for me and Atlanta for David, uh, 
pick up the story and just say, you know, like recent high school graduates from these high schools have developed this lotion to fight sweaty hands. Um, and I remember, you know, I think this was the 16th or the 17th, it was a Saturday. Um, and the PayPal app on my phone just kept getting all these notifications that was like <laughs> sale, sale, sale. And I, I was blown away. I was like, wow, we have so, so much demand. I think we had, you know, a hundred, a hundred sales that first day right out of the gate, Incredible. which was huge to us. And I remember three months in, we, we had done basically $10,000 in sales in each of the first three months, which we thought was, you know, life-changing. We're like, wow, we had no yeah. idea this was gonna do so well. Uh, and that's, you know, we'll, we'll do that in a few good hours these days. <laughs> um, but it's, um, don't wanna give away too much the scale of our company. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool because I, I think that moment felt bigger than almost any growth we've had since. Um, because it just validated that, wow, there's people who are actually willing to pay money for something we've created. And for the longest time, I had this feeling of imposter syndrome about it. Weirdly enough, um, imposter syndrome is something that I heard a lot about in college where people were saying like, oh, I feel like I don't deserve to be here. You know, I feel like everybody here is smarter than me. I never got that feeling. I think, you know, the computer science classes were pretty easy. The physics classes were brutally hard. I was the dumbest person in the room. But I, you know, I was arrogant and I blamed that more on the professors than I was. So I was, I had to watch MIT like open courseware to get through physics. I was like, that's stupid. Why, you know, this is an expensive institution. I should be getting, I should be learning this physics better. But I, I think I'm, I'm too dumb to be good at physics. Um, but anyway, I never had imposter syndrome in college. As soon as we started selling Carpe, I had this horrible feeling of imposter syndrome. I'm like, you know, we've tricked these people. We made, we made this product. This isn't like a real Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson big product. Like, yeah. I can't believe, you know, they're spending good money on something that we made without all, you know, these professional marketers and professional designers, et cetera. And uh, pretty soon you kind of get over that and you realize that's how the world works. That's how all products are made. But it's uh, your first time kind of being behind the curtain. It's a little surreal. Yeah. Um, because, uh, yeah, it's it, I, I don't even know how to describe it other than you, you know, all your life, you've been kind of on the consumption side of all these products. And then once you start making them, you realize I can do this. Like anybody <laughs> can do this. That's kind of, that shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> I, bet, I, bet. I can't even imagine. That's yeah. amazing. So that was, that was a, that was a really cool feeling. And you know, uh, it's been a, it's kind of been a privilege and an honor since then to, to keep getting these sales. So, some days you, you do take it for granted. Yeah. You know, you have less sales than you expect and you're like, oh, what's happening? Um, and I think, you know, you can never forget that every single sale is somebody who's trusting you, like giving you money to say, help me out with this, help me out with my sweating. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, you gotta remember and keep top of mind uh, that that's who you're there for. You're there for your customers. Um, like, you know, probably my investors are gonna hear this and they're not gonna like this. I, you're not there for your investors. I think if you can make your investors some money along the way, that's really good. The investors need to get paid before you get paid because um, it's their money. But the customers need to get served before anything else, or else, you know, what's the point? You know, why you don't want to be creating something out there that's making you money, that's making investors money, if it's not actively helping people. Because yeah. I just don't think that's any way to be happy. Yeah, yeah. So you brought up your investors, and you talked a bit about them, um, Bootstrap Advisors. So I guess in general, like, how do you think about investment and? If you're going to go start up a business, like, do you think that investors are a key part of that, or do you think that you would recommend people go out and seek other forms of? Yeah, I think it varies so much by the type of company you're at, the stage you're at, and who you are. Um, today, if David and I were starting a company similar to Carpe, we might be able to pull off bootstrapping it just because of the knowledge we have and the fact that you know now that we're not broke college students, we have 
the few thousand dollars we'd need. Literally, it, we, we didn't have anything when we were starting this to, to get anything done. Um, now we probably have a tiny bit of our own money to, to, to start something with. But really the reason we went to Bootstrap is because we had no idea how to start a company and they had the resources, they had the experience, and they had you know the willingness to help us really launch this. And I don't think we could have gotten it off the ground at all without them. Um, so that I think was particular to our case. If we'd had experience, if we'd done companies similar to this, we wouldn't have needed to partner with them. Um, but they taught us nearly everything we knew for the first few years. And then we sort of started, in a way, maybe not outgrowing them, because they've certainly done companies that are bigger than anything any stage Carpe's at right now. Uh, but Carpe started going into a direction that they maybe were unfamiliar with as we became bigger and you know more specialized. And then we realized we had to keep growing our advisor network if we had any idea how we were gonna how we were gonna keep going. Um, and so during our seed round, we were very fortunate to bring on Seth Radwell, the former CEO of Proactive, who's oh, been wow. a huge um, you know help with our marketing ever since. He's he's been a big leader at our company in terms of guiding us on how to market a product like this. Um, and you know, I think the the series, the seed round and the series A that we've since raised, uh, those have we've definitely benefited a lot from the advisors we've met in those rounds. And I think our company wouldn't be where it is today without those advisors. But those rounds were more so about actually having money to grow. Um, our business economics are pretty good. We could have, uh, we probably, we we definitely needed that bootstrap investment at the start. But after that, the formal seed round, the Series A which were led by Angel Networks. Um, we have some small VCs involved, uh, but I don't think our company is a good fit for an aggressive VC because we are a company that can be profitable, that can have EBITDA. We're just, um, you know, the investment is more about choosing growth rather than a lot of venture capital plays. You need all this money or the company's not gonna be able to exist at all. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I'm not giving this answer the structure that I should be getting it, but basically I think for, Every level of founder experience, every type of company, every type of industry, you have different needs for investors and advisors. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's no one size fits all advice for whether or not you should be seeking investment right now and yeah. what type of investment. But Fair enough. yeah, definitely Fair consider enough. VCs, consider angel networks, consider high net worth individuals. Um, those are all options that you should be aware of. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I know something that has happened to a lot of entrepreneurs, I would say pretty much all and definitely me is that at some point or another, you know, you have a string of bad things happen. You're like, Oh my God, everything is crashing and burning. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, like, is there a time that comes to mind that you talk about just how you, what, ha or even at a broad level, what happened and how you got out of that mentality and how do you, yeah. You know, I think there's, there's so many things over the years. I, you know, I know very few founders who wouldn't agree with the idea that, um, you know, especially in the early days, you're usually, either thinking like this is definitely gonna be a billion dollar company or this is definitely gonna fail. I think as your company grows and matures, that kind of oscillation window narrows. So right now, there's definitely days where I think, oh, this is gonna be huge and there's days where, oh, this I don't know how this is gonna work out, but it's no longer everything or nothing. Right yeah. now, it's sort of like kind of getting into this more reasonable value threshold. <laughs> um, so in the early days where the swings were wild and you just never knew if the company was gonna survive another week, I remember uh, when we were still kind of an idea stage, we were prototyping this thing and we were really plugged into the local startup competition network. And I have you know mixed feelings about startup competitions, but I definitely uh, appreciate what they're trying to do in terms of you know foster communities and support for, on, for small entrepreneurs. 
Um, and so there was this one at UNC, the Carolina Pitch Party, where it's basically all these local founders working on their ideas. Um, each one or each team has a table around this big room. Local investors are going around and basically putting these fake dollars uh, into the cups of the teams that they think have good ideas. And there's just so many fake dollars to go around that basically every team should be getting a lot of money. We were getting no dollars that night. All the investors were coming by, listening to our pitch and just walking away. And the feedback was generally like, nobody's gonna wanna buy this product. There's not gonna be demand. Um, and I remember walking away from that night. Um, that was probably my darkest moment in the early days of Carpe, where we still thought it was uh, you know, kind of gonna be a big project, maybe not the future of our lives. Um, but we were already getting quite serious and quite involved with it, David and I were. And um, I, was, I remember walking out of that gym that night where that was being held, or it was actually like the, some weird reception hall at the football stadium at, uh, at UNC, and thinking this, this is probably it, you know, this is, this is a shit idea, <laughs> nobody likes it, we have no demand for this product, our prototypes aren't going that well. Um, and that night I remember getting dinner with some alumni actually from the Cube who'd come to visit, um, and some current members of the cube, and they basically said, yeah, this is the night you decide whether this is the thing you're gonna go all in on, or you're moving on to mess around with your next project. Um, and I took it very seriously that night. Like there was, I remember that dinner fondly, and, um, or distinctly, and I remember really giving it some serious thought. You know, do I wanna keep working on this when I have no idea if this is something that people are gonna want. And it's gonna take us, at that point we knew it was gonna take us at least another nine months before this saw the light of day. And this is college, so like, yeah. you know, every month feels like a very big big part of your life. Yeah. Um, and I think it was, uh, it was really the fact that I realized, you know what, maybe we'll pivot, maybe we'll figure this out, but I, I, I have so much faith in the relationship I have with David that I need to, I need to, be all in on whatever we're working on together. Um, and so that night, I think ever since that night, no matter how low it's gotten, it hasn't ever been as, it's never felt as despondent just because um, I'm, all, I'm all in. So it's like, all right, we'll see what happens, yeah. right? That was the last night that I feel like I had a choice, which yeah. is why I was so scary. Because when you still have a choice, you're like, oh no, do I, you know, do I eject or not? And after that, I removed the ejection handles. I'm like, all right, we're riding this thing into the ground no matter what happens. And what do you know, it really started doing well. And that night, at that pitch party, actually, one of the associates of Bootstrap Advisors met us uh, at our table. And she uh, you know, shot a note to Benji and Chris about us. And that is the reason we ended up meeting up with them. Wow. That night where you know we thought nobody was interested in our company uh, was the reason we got connected with Bootstrap and Bootstrap is the reason Carpe ever saw the light of day. So wow. it's pretty cool. <laughs> pretty pivotal night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, now you guys are doing amazingly. You said, you said that you're in CVS and Target nationwide, is that right? Uh, yes, we are in CVS and Target nationwide with our hand and foot antiperspirants. Yep. And um, yeah, a lot of other retailers interested, but our primary distribution is on our website and on Amazon. Gotcha, gotcha. And I guess, how do you think about that difference between in-store and in, I guess, e-commerce? Yeah, I think uh, product discovery these days happens much more online. Mm -hmm. But I think for a product like antiperspirants where you want an immediate answer, you want an immediate solution, you're not gonna wait two days to stop smelling bad, to stop feeling sweaty. Yeah. Uh, you do want the convenience of being able to pick it up in any local retailer. So that's kind of our philosophy for why we slowly started moving into retail, saying, hey, we don't think this is where people are gonna find out about Carpe. Some people will, and that's cool. Uh, but we think this is ultimately where people will want to buy Carpe. 
Um, and so far, it's it's done pretty well. I mean, you know, we're really we're really thankful that CVS and Target took a chance on us, but I think they're seeing pretty good results with yeah. how our products are selling. Cool. So we're gonna do the rapid fire now, and I'm just gonna Excited. spit a topic at you and give me your gut reaction on it. In either how it affects you, how it affects your business, how you're thinking about that that topic. Let's go. All right. <laughs> Starting a company right out of college? Um, I would say start it in college. Don't start it right after college when you know you are, uh, you suddenly have potentially huge student loan debt. Uh, you, you know, have no place to live because you've left your, <laughs> you've left your dorm or whatever. Um, in college, you have this very awesome safety net of, you know, you kind of have this full time job of being a student. This will be a side hustle. Um, nobody's expecting this to succeed. Your life isn't riding on this succeeding. And you have more and more these amazing entrepreneurship networks in colleges and these you know, uh, startup incubators basically in, in many ways. So I would say if you can work on projects in college, try to start something in college, probably a safer time to do it than when you have kids and a spouse <laughs> and need to mortgage your house. Yeah. Uh, online reviews? Uh, really good, I think. Uh, and they keep us honest. So with Amazon, it's incredibly, incredibly hard at this point. And when I say incredibly hard, I think it might be impossible, but I'm sure somebody's figured it out, to fake reviews on Amazon. Amazon's gotten really good at policing those. And so um, since you know working on Carpe, I've gained much more trust in Amazon reviews, actually, because I know that they're probably pretty accurate. The sellers can't fake them. Um, and also, I've, I've seen them as, you know, a really good tool of like capitalist democracy basically because <laughs> you win or die by the the actual user perception of your product yeah um and so we've had periods of bad reviews on amazon and i think they really galvanize us into action into like okay we can't let this be happening like let's fix whatever's going on here um and you know i, I think it keeps you honest online reviews especially the ones that are strictly policed like amazon reviews they really keep you honest and make sure that you're making a great product so i really like them um, Amazon generic products. Amazon generic products. I think they're overblown. Weirdly enough, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's funny. Amazon uh, basics products often have pretty poor reviews on Amazon. <laughs> which I respect the integrity of Amazon. They're not faking the reviews, but knowing how devious Amazon is, that's probably like an intentional psychological game they're playing. They're like, you can trust the reviews so much. Their own products. <laughs> we're going to be honest about how much they suck. Um, but I don't think they're moving really into categories like. Uh, our product, knock on wood, um, yeah. I think maybe in like, you know, I, I think if there's an Amazon Basics version of it, there's already an Alibaba version of it, so <laughs> just buy it on Alibaba instead. I'm, Fair enough. Yeah. Selling international. Selling international. Um, you know, for a while we had this philosophy of we, uh, we're going to let the acquirer deal with that. You know, there's, there's all these weird games I think people want to play where it's like, oh, you need to leave something on the table for the acquirer. You need to leave retail on the table so that an acquirer can see like wow you're a successful online brand we're gonna really? we're gonna really take you into retail oh yeah that's that's a big that's actually a strategy that might be good there's a <laughs> lot of very successful exits like native case in point um that uh kind of had that philosophy and it did quite well for them so maybe we're wrong for going into retail so early but i'm thinking no let's uh let's do everything that you know can bring us success right now that can bring us customers right now and um i think international is one of those things i we, we did definitely in the past hold back a little intentionally from international saying that could be the 
acquire opportunity. You can have a big multinational will say, okay, this brand's doing well in the States, let's take them international. But I think right now the barriers to entry are dropping all over the world in terms of getting your product out there. Um, and so that's something that we definitely wanna keep growing in the next few years. Selling direct versus reseller? Uh, always sell direct if you can. I mean, resellers have less and less value in today's world. Um, resellers generally, they're, you know, they're, that, that's not to say that anytime there's a middleman, it, it's a con. Yeah. Uh, there's middlemen that you want to work with just because they are bringing expertise or something that you cannot deliver. Yeah. So if you are a solo founder and you don't know how to get into all these retail channels, uh, including online retail channels, like there's a lot of small entrepreneurs who don't want to be bothered running Amazon pages and maybe they should be selling through an Amazon reseller. But I will say for you know a company like ours where we can very easily uh, manage our own Amazon presence, and it's and it's not easy to manage an Amazon presence actually. It's, it, there's a lot of stuff involved there. Amazon is kind of difficult to work with. Um, but uh, we would never want to sell on Amazon through a reseller because, and even on Amazon, we uh, we prefer to have people coming through our website than Amazon. Amazon is itself a sort of reseller um, because on the website we own the relationship fully. Yeah. So yeah. influencers. Uh, I mean, influencers I think are just a name for something, the current name for something that's been out there for a while, uh, which is basically, you know, they're the current version of celebrity. And there's this <laughs> spectrum from celebrity to your friends. And it's basically uh, a, a type of word of mouth. Yeah. Um, I think there's definitely in any developing market, there's some shitty things that happen. I, I generally don't like paid influencers much because um, it, it feels disingenuous to me that these people are uh, you know basically sharing their lives and sharing their preferences with people who think they're getting exposed to the genuine preferences of somebody and instead you know it's kind of all an advertisement and I don't <laughs> like hidden advertisements I think they're a little unethical um, but yeah I just see them as another type of word of mouth Makes sense. Um, Shopify or other e-commerce platforms um, we went custom initially because we Shopify at the time was not well designed for a single product experience mm -hmm. and there have been huge benefits to being as custom as we are uh, in terms of things we can test and new things we can implement but yeah. the you know the the workload to maintain a custom site uh, to make everything run in a, in a basic functional way is way too high and we actually will probably be moving to Shopify uh, even as we scale Shopify is you know something you think you launch on and then you grow into custom we've been custom and we're probably going to grow into Shopify wow yeah. um, Vaseline or like Neutrogena or other big brands like J&J P&G yeah lotions what, a, what about them they I mean we're not, we're not we're not competing with lotions right yeah, like enough. we're competing with antiperspirants yeah. um, but I think you know you need to find when you're saying you earlier you mentioned being very uh, you know having your, what's the word, ear, ear to the ground, ear to the wind. I'm, yeah. I'm forgetting my idioms right now. I'm getting tired. <laughs> uh, but, you know, listening to your competitors, seeing what they're putting out there. Um, I think with your peers, it's a little less important to be reactive to what they're doing because, you know, you guys are all growing so fast. It's more important to focus on what you think is going to deliver the greatest value to your customer. I think when it comes to the big established giants, you definitely want to look at what they're doing and kind of see what they might be missing. Um, so I think we've done a bit of that. I think we cater to needs that the big brands haven't answered. And that's, in simplest terms, our relationship with the big brands. And I think as a small company, we're probably a bit more agile than they are. Yeah. So um, you know, I think we can keep catering to needs that is they're a little less suited to respond to. SEO? Uh, 
really important. I mean, it's, <laughs> but one thing that I think trips people up on SEO is there's what where you need to SEO changes every decade, if not less, if not more frequently, and it varies by industry. When people when you hear SEO, I, I don't know, my mind immediately jumps to Google. I think most people's mind jumps to like, oh, SEO, that means Google search, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the SEO that mattered far more for Carpe, especially in its early days, was Amazon, Amazon SEO. Yeah. yeah, and I think these days, you know, Instagram, TikTok SEO might be very important for some brands. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Duke's Entrepreneurship Network. Um, I am very, very grateful to be part of, you know, a community like that. You know, one of the reasons I did come to Duke is because I felt that they have a really good entrepreneurship ecosystem. Um, and in terms of, you know, I, I could get into thinking about how the network could be better deployed, etc. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I, I almost want to say I don't even see Duke's network anymore because we're so entwined with the Triangle Network and yeah. uh, the UNC Network and the Duke Network, and I all kind of see it as one mesh. But I think that Duke Network was the launch pad to getting into this broader entrepreneurship community that yeah. we're lucky enough to be part of now as you know the, the founders of Carpe. Yeah. So I'm very grateful that it's there. Uh, DDC exits. Um, you know, we... I, I think... DDC is pretty broad. Weirdly enough, in consumer goods, I actually think exits haven't been that unhealthy. I think, you know... You look at the hundred million dollar acquisition of Native by PNG, which I'm going to keep going back to just because it's like a, it's a fun comparable for us. They had good EBITDA, like they're yeah. a profitable business. I think they were acquired for a reasonable price in a, in a way that could actually bolster PNG's business. They needed a brand, yeah. you know. Like I said, the incumbents aren't very agile to responding to new customer needs. They generally work through acquisition. Yeah. So I think in like these consumer product goods uh, spaces, consumer packaged goods, um, there's a lot of uh, healthy acquisitions. I think in the broader DNVB ecosystem where you're seeing brands like Casper, uh, which, you know, appropriated my name, so I don't like them. Um, and they're trying to IPO with, like, negative user economics. What is this? Is, I know. The, and the thing is, I, I don't, I don't, I fundamentally don't believe in the long-term viability of Casper, where they're saying they're like a sleep tech company. Like, no, 8sleep is a sleep tech company. You guys were the first company that managed to lose money on mattresses. Like, that's your, <laughs> that's your claim to fame. Stick with that. So, I don't know. Uh, maybe they'll prove me wrong, but you look at, you know, um, that you look at, uh, well, I guess these aren't uh, consumer D to C examples, but well, actually, no. A lot of a lot there was a lot of hype in the past about these uh, meal kits, etc. Yeah. You know, you're almost forgetting that now because all the all the big busts of re of late are like WeWork and Uber. Yeah. But there's just way too much hype on negative user economics, and that should never. And you know, I think we're already learning our lesson in tech, where even. In a tech company like Uber, the negative user economics are going to catch up with you, and it's and and we work, and it's like you know you're not going to be everything that you thought you could be, even though you could be. You, you those companies will continue to exist as pretty successful companies. They're not you know they, they're like a tenth of the valuation that they used to be. Yeah, I know for WeWork, I think for Uber, right? Yeah. Uber definitely wasn't yeah. what it was going to be. Um, but the bigger danger is when that bleeds, that tech valuation mentality bleeds into consumer goods, where EBITDA is super possible. Like you can totally be running a sustainable business and making a profit and pos having positive user economics, especially when you're trading hard goods. Um, and so I think if you, if investors and entrepreneurs keep letting that mentality of like, you know, who needs profit when you can just keep burning money and growing, um, that's going to lead to situations like these, uh, you know, <laughs> these Companies plate, plate uh, 
yeah, meal kit companies collapsing and Casper and you know the jury's out on Casper so we'll see where it goes but I, I don't see that ending very well yeah. um, because I don't think that's sustainable yeah uh, best smell for products like yours oh well we like eucalyptus I mean, no <laughs> parfait smells like eucalyptus it's just medical enough to feel like hey this is something that I can trust but it's also fresh gender neutral I'm a big fan of gender neutral yeah you know I uh, and I think a lot of people are coming around to that just yeah. like smell like something fresh and clean and natural worst smell um, well you don't want to smell like I don't know sewage <laughs> <laughs> worst popular smell maybe. worst popular smell ooh that's good um Nobody actually wears like licorice smells, right? That <laughs> thing. Um, I don't know. I like smells. I uh, I I really like strong colognes. You yeah. know, this is I don't trust myself in determining the scents for our products because I am way too open to strong smells. But <laughs> we have the security guard in our building. Uh, <laughs> don't want to call him out if he's listening. But um, basically, one of our employees uh, says that you know she can smell where he's been. For the last 10 minutes because he does the rounds through the building he's like if he's been in the spot for, in at any point in the last 10 minutes i can smell it and i gag and i can smell it too but i love the scent like, this is delightful i wish more people wore cologne i don't but i just love smells uh, what inspires you um i think people who are fundamentally changing uh what humanity is capable of so I mean, this is the answer I think everybody gives, but I think Elon Musk is super inspirational, yeah. uh, you know, particularly with SpaceX. Like, landing orbital class rockets, I think everybody was impressed by that, but I don't think we're nearly impressed enough by that. <laughs> like, you're landing orbital class rockets. I think this guy's going to genuinely build these spaceships that go to Mars. That's insane. We, we should have been doing that decades ago, yeah. but we just need people like that who are really setting the sights so high and not just trying to make a better financial product or, you know frankly a, a better deodorant like sometimes I feel like what we're working on uh, you know might not be ambitious enough although I do think we're creating something that hasn't been out there before we're really helping people um, and you know I, I think that's that's what matters is creating right. something that hasn't been done before um, and not just building a better mousetrap yeah where should people find you um, I'm trying to do Twitter now so you can follow me at I think just Casper Kubica yeah. on Twitter um, but yeah, this, this podcast doesn't have very huge circulation, so I feel unafraid to say this. If you really want to talk to me, um, it's pretty easy to figure out my email address. Uh, just guess what my email address would be based on our company website and my first name, and you will probably guess correct. And where should they find the company? Uh, mycarpe.com, M-Y-C-A-R-P-E.com, carpe like carpe diem, and mycarpe because carpe.com is owned by some like fintech company so. <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for being here it's been a pleasure it's thank you so much for interviewing me i hope i haven't been too boring and i've had a lot of fun that was amazing <laughs> thank you thanks everyone for listening feel free to reach out if you have any questions any suggestions or if you or someone else you know would like to be on the next episode and if you're thinking about starting a business what are you waiting for? Do it already.